the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. It will be a long time before the bill for insurers is in, but the grounding of the Ever Given last month, which resulted in the closure of the Suez Canal for six days, is clearly shaping up to be one of the most significant casualties of recent years. The Canal Authority is demanding an enormous $916 million sum in compensation, a figure most people in the marine insurance community believe to be vastly inflated. To enforce that demand, it has arrested both the vessel and the cargo. That said, the canal indisputably does have a valid claim for outlay on salvage and any damage to the canal, as well as loss of revenue. And a fair settlement won't come cheap. Then there's the hull and machinery element. Ever Given is covered in the Japanese markets, although we understand that some London market players have indirect exposure. As far as is known, the vessel is not badly damaged. It has been declared fit to sail on, although it will likely need some repairs. Huller Machinery also picks up the tab for the services of Schmidt, the professional salver, which is said to be a huge relative to the premium paid. All of this is before we even get into the claims on cargo, loss of hire and delay policies. It's now been over a month since the grounding, and marine insurers seem to have acted with their traditional sang-froid. There are no signs of an immediate spike in rates. But that happy situation may not last forever. There are already suggestions that the market will respond in its own good time. Hull and machinery rates may now harden for bigger box ships, and cargo rates will harden across all categories as underwriters come to terms with aggregation risk. Ultimately, all owners could end up feeling this casualty in the pocket when the international group comes to renew its pool reinsurance contract next year. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List, and I will be your host for this special joint Lloyd's List and Insurance Day podcast to discuss the outlook of the marine insurance sector after the ever given. With me this week, I have two very distinguished guests, Jonathan Hum, who leads the marine hull team at Aegis London, and Stephen Hawke, managing director of PL Ferrari, the P&I specialist broker. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thank you. So, Jonathan, I'm going to start with you, if that's okay. Why do you think it is that the Huller machinery response has been subdued so far? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think um, the response from the marine market has been subdued. As you pointed out in your introduction, the actual damage to the vessel seems to be limited at this point. Um, And therefore, in, in, in rating terms, the loss itself was not a market-changing event, but I think the important thing to remember is that it was very close to being one. Um, there are very few salvage units in the world that could have undertaken the job if the vessel had to be lighted in order to free it, and we were extremely close to a catastrophe in that respect. Uh, the, the damage to the vessel seems to be limited, but as you've said, the salvage costs will be sizable, and I think this will add fuel to the argument that marine insurers need to build premium loadings to cater for events like this, particularly as vessels continue to increase in size. And that's why I think we're looking at a a lag effect on on the direct rating environment. Okay. I mean, the, the whole market has been hardening quite significantly for the two or three year, past two or three years already. Do you think this is going to add pressure to that? Well, I think it'll keep rating at the, the forefront of people's minds. Um, from a from a whole standpoint, it'll be in in some ways a relief that the 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 damage wasn't a great deal worse, and the event as an overall um, wasn't a great deal worse. 
the whole market's been going through a period of correction um, that was entirely necessary as the results um, within and without Lloyd's has been have been poor. Um, you know, we've seen 30 odd markets pull out or pull back in the last two or three years. And I think this, whilst we've seen a, um, you know, a reduction in perhaps the rates of attritional losses in the last two years, um, results started to improve. I think this reminds people that the the volatility associated with those large um, large units, ever-growing units, um, can cause a huge spike in the figures and therefore will focus underwriters' minds on, on the rating environment um, and add pressure in the long term. So give us the insider's view then. What, what sort of factors are going to be on underwriters' minds as they assess this? I think that if we, if we take we don't have to look just at box ships. You can, you can see it across the industry that um, sizes of vessels have been increasing exponentially over the last few years. I think Ayumi um, and other industry bodies have been focusing on box ships, particularly recently after a string of nasty fire events. But, but uh, lately we've seen a number of losses on ultra-large container vessels like the One Apus and the Maersk Essen, uh, where the containers themselves have been lost, and that's arguably due to stability issues and or loss of propulsion and routing question marks. So I think it serves to highlight the the perils of the venture that we are exposed to as marine hull underwriters and the different effect that those perils may have on, on the ultra-large vessels and the routes that they run. We are, as I said, we're very lucky in this instance from a specific hull standpoint that the damage wasn't worse, but I think the knock-on effect, as you say, for, for cargo interests, for liability um, on the PI side, um, are huge uh, and the ramifications of the global supply chain are huge so we need to i think it's difficult as underwriters to budget or build in premium loadings for those those costs that aren't directly associated with the damage to the units but as hull underwriters we do pick up a great deal of coverage outside physical damage and it's important to recognize that in the rating and to share that across the world fleet that we ensure Mm. I mean, you you mentioned it's not just a, an issue of box ships, but you know specifically this this generation of large box ships and the the very frequent uh, spate of, of fires on board container ships generally, and 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 as you say, you know there are specific issues with the size of these vessels. I mean, is the is the size of these box ships a, a concern for for the insurance market? Do you think? Yes, I think it is. I think it is a concern. I think that uh, we have to respond to the market forces that are driven by consumer demand and driven by those companies that you know wish to ship containers in a certain way. But I think for us, we have to look at the the risks posed from a whole perspective from physical damage. But a large part of what these these ever increasing size vessels, the threat that they pose is from a salvage perspective. And and from a share of of general average, where that's if that's uh, to be declared and agreed. What about the cargo market? So the cargo market, I think there is a great deal of concern within the cargo market, but again, not a particular reaction or a, I suppose a knee-jerk reaction on the rating side. Um, we haven't seen a huge change in market conditions on cargo, but again, it focuses um, cargo's mind on the sheer value at risk being being carried by a container ship of this size you know if you if you anticipate that an average value of a container might be fifty thousand dollars you've got a billion dollars worth of goods um, on a vessel such as this 
And as I said, we were extremely fortunate that the cargo didn't have to be lighted in this instance. But mm. the way General Average operates, it does um, you know, pose questions for how, how a claim like this might be sorted out in the future once, once the event itself is over. And, and aggregation risk, obviously a big topic in cargo insurance right now, especially after the Beirut blast. I mean, is that a factor? Aggregations, this again, um, aggregations are at the forefront of cargo insurers' minds. I think there's a huge amount of investment going into um, technology to better assess aggregation, whether that's um, point in time aggregation at a particular location or um, tracking containers um, in, in real time. I think that this is a specific issue in cargo and it's being looked at very carefully. Um, the difference between aggregation on land and sea is that obviously on land, uh, we have an idea what our exposure is. On sea, we don't. We're at the mercy of those shippers and um, where they decide to place their goods at any one time. But we're not looking at a, another cost to Concordia right now, are we? I don't believe we are, no. I think that the we, we are very fortunate to have avoided that um, by a matter of days, by the looks of things. <laughs> well... Heavens for small mercies. Yes, All right. Exactly. Well, let's, let's, let's turn to the, the, the P&I aspects of this and, and talk to, to you, Stephen. Uh, P&I has also been more expensive for the last couple of years. Can you just uh, give our, our shipping audience uh, a, a bit of an overview in terms of why that is? And uh, obviously, we're being listened to by both the insurance market this week and the, uh, the, the, the shipping industry. So it'd be good to get an overview from you, I think. Yes, well, um, uh, and of course, the ship owners that may be listening are very much part of the decision making process that increases rates, because, of course, it is the ship owners who own the P&I clubs and it is their boards made up of ship owners who, with the guidance from the managers, um, look at the finances of a club and, um, and d dictate whether or not price increases are necessary. I sometimes find it slightly egregious of some of our broking colleagues who claim that the clubs can have too much money or making bad decisions when it is in fact the ship owners themselves who in a considered uh, an analytical manner are making those decisions. The problem has been that um, the clubs have had a lot of money. They've had a good run of, um, of good years um, and built up massive free reserves. Um, when in the last couple of years, large claims, very large claims, so-called pool claims in excess of club retention started to hit the clubs. Um, normally in the past, the clubs would have subsidised these consequent underwriting losses by dipping into those free reserves. But the rating agency, Standard & Poor's, has been taking quite a dim view on the P&I clubs and their loss-making pure combined underwriting uh, combined ratio and have demanded of the clubs at the risk of downgrades that they get their house in order in terms of pure underwriting. So typically in a year, those high value claims above 10 million would probably be expected to pan out across the 13 P&I clubs at around about $250 million worth of claims a year. And that's what the clubs would be budgeting for. In the last couple of years, the combined level of claims at their current state within the pool is nearer a billion dollars. Um, and if you take an average club having 8% share of that, well, there's about $40 million or so uh, to $80 million worth of unbudgeted additional losses uh, that are going into, into their underwriting result. The net result is that the combined ratios have gone into double digits and we expect for the year just finished on February the 20th to the, for them to be in the 20 to 30, 120 to 130% range. Mm. As mutuals, the board 
have to decide that they have to get the rates up. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, with that context in mind, I mean, focusing on the fallout from the ever given, our uh, our insurance specialist David Osler he tells us that. Uh, the ever given claim is going to easily bust the UK club's $10 million retention and enter the pool scheme, uh, will almost certainly hit the hydro layer and is pretty likely to uh, hit the reinsurance markets. Is, is that how you see this panning out? I think that one could be making the assumption that that is absolutely the case. The only reason I'm hes- hesitant is that liability does have to be established and um, until that liability has been established and a quantum around it, it is difficult always to anticipate. But just given the nature of the noise that's surrounding this, the uh, the um, position of the of the Suez Canal and the Egyptian authorities, I think it's it's fair to say it will it will go up into that reinsurance layer. Well, quite. They uh, they they've been a little bit quiet uh, in the last few days, but uh, I do get the impression that um, there are wheels turning over in uh, Egypt at the moment. We will see. Um, you, you, you've also said in, a, in an interview with Lloyd's List that you expect the international group's pool scheme reinsurance contract to be significantly more expensive when it comes up for renewal in 2022. Could you tell us why you think that and give us some idea of uh, how much more expensive you think it's going to get? One of the um, challenges that that contract has is it has been on a two year deal. Brilliant timing that it's sent in, in, in a sense avoided the uh, the hardening commercial li- marine liability market. And remember that reinsurance contract is primarily placed into, into, into the marine liability market as opposed to the sort of specialist reinsurance market. And, and those rates have been going up and, you know, by double digits for, for good records. And so the group reinsurance contract has avoided that and it comes up for renewal for, on the 20th of February 2022. Um, and just in the natural order of things, I would imagine reinsurance underwriters would be looking to um, get extra money to subsidise the fact that they have missed out on a on a year or two's worth of, of, of market increases. Now, the group have a, have a very good contract. They have a very good relationship with their reinsurers and they have very, very good reinsurance brokers. So they'll be looking to mitigate that. But um, market sources from within the club suggest that they're looking at a 15 to 20 percent increase Um, that may dilute over the period of time between now and renewal. But that's the sort of range that people are expecting. And why is that? Well, you know, you've got things like the Golden Ray um, car carrier claim, which is burning through the reinsurance layer like no tomorrow Um, and so that reinsurance layer is is under stress not just because liability rates are going up anyhow but also because um, there are claims on or will be claims on that layer. Mm. And I mean at at that level it's going to be sufficient for for all owners I think to, to feel that hit on a vessel by vessel level do you think? Yeah, I mean, as as you may be aware, the 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 premium overall premium for that reinsurance contract is is agreed, and then it is divided up um, in a tariff rated on dollars or cents per ton, depending on the type of vessel that you're operating. So there are traditionally have only been four types: there was persistent oil, uh, clean tankers, uh, dry cargo, and passenger vessels. Last year, they introduced uh, a new tariff, which was for fully cellular container ships, um, which seems uh, ironically predictive. But um, 
those rates will go up and the International Group Reinsurance Subcommittee will assess which of those groups need to pay more of the ultimate penalty that may be coming at this renewal than others. So I guess you could argue that given what happened in the Suez Canal, there will be a particular fo focus on, on box ships um, and their new individual tariff rating. Um, but it would be the case that if there is a general market increase in that reinsurance contract, all of those individual ship owning categories will pay a proportion of it, but some will make pay more of that proportion than others. I think just one other point on this is that after Costa Concordia, which you mentioned earlier, uh, the tariff rate for passenger and cruise vessels went up absolutely exponentially. And it's currently around about five to six times the rate of any other class of ship under that tariff rating scheme, which begs a question if the tariff rating reacted to a major catastrophe like the Costa Concordia and put an extra onus on that particularly in industry sector, it would not be surprising, one thinks, that there will be the similar focus on box ships um, at the next reinsurance renewal and the consequent tariff uh, assessments. Well, with all apologies to the uh, box community listening into this podcast, we're ending on such a downer. Uh, I'm afraid that's where we're going to have to leave the podcast this week. Um, thank you, Jonathan and Stephen, for a, a fascinating discussion. Uh, before we go, a reminder, if you're interested in marine insurance, but not a subscriber either to Lloyd's List or Insurance Day, you really should be. Uh, Lloyd'sList.com slash subscriptions for Lloyd's List, insurancedaycom slash subscriptions on the insurance side. Details in the podcast description. Uh, but for now, uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, we will see you next week when the podcast will go their separate ways on Insurance Day and LawyersList.com. But thank you for listening to the first joint LawyersList and InsuranceDay.com podcast of the year.